He was uh, born in Upton, which was a little village. He was born in, nine, in 1827, a little village uh, uh, in uh, Essex. And uh, this is a picture of uh, Upton House uh, in the time of uh, Lister's uh, early youth. Uh, the house has disappeared, and indeed Upton is now swallowed up uh, in the uh, suburbs of, uh, of East London. So it's no use going to Upton and hoping to find a little uh, country house uh, in a little village there. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, his father, uh, and this is the only picture I've got of him, this is a, this is a sketch he made of himself, uh, um, Jackson Lister, Joseph Jackson Lister, was a very interesting man. Uh, he was a Quaker and, of course, therefore a teetotaler, but he made a uh, considerable living uh, as a uh, wine merchant, which is an unusual thing for a Quaker to do. Uh, his hobby uh, was uh, science, and he was particularly interested in optics, and indeed he made great contribution to it. This is uh, Lister's microscope. Our Lister, Joseph Lister's microscope, and you'll see this in the museum, in the Hunter Museum. And this was the invention of uh, Jackson Lister, because Jackson Lister uh, invented the achromatic microscope. Now, you all know, if you use an ordinary magnifying glass, there's a sort of halo, a rainbow around the edge, which is very distracting. And that gets worse and worse and worse the more powerful the lens is. And it was uh, Jackson Lister, Lister's father, who showed that if you combine it very cleverly with concave lenses, you produce the achromatic microscope, the microscope without this color distortion. Uh, for that, he was made a fellow of the Royal Society. But he wasn't satisfied with that because he also made some very interesting microscopic observations. For example, with uh, Hodgkin of Hodgkin's disease, physician at uh, Guy's Hospital, he actually described for the first time the exact appearance of red blood corpuscles, uh, the biconcave structures that you're all familiar with from your biology days. Uh, Lister went to University Cottage Hospital. Uh, I'm so sorry. It's one of these terrible slips, UCH, University Cottage. I hope there's nobody here from UCH. I'm always making that mistake. They're nice chaps there. Uh, he went to UCH uh, as a student and then became a great surgeon there, Ericsson's house surgeon. And while he was with Ericsson, he made some very interesting observations using Dad's achromatic microscope. He looked at all the terrible Parallel material that was common, as you'll hear, in the wards of uh, UCH. And, for example, he saw uh, that they were invaded with pus cells, these white cells that we're very familiar with in infected material. And he also saw little tiny particles in this material, which later he realized was Pasteur's, Pasteur's observations of, microscope, of uh, microbes. Extraordinary thing for a young house surgeon to do. Uh, uh, Erickson uh, realized that he had a bright young man and sent him to his friend uh, Syme, James Syme, uh, in Edinburgh uh, as, his, uh, as his assistant. Syme uh, uh, devised the Syme amputation at the ankle, 
which I've only done once in my life, and that was on a poor Canadian nurse uh, who was blown up in the IRA uh, Hyde Park bombing. Um, and uh, Syme was not only his chief, but he also had a very nice daughter, Agnes, and uh, Lister married the girl. And here's young Agnes at the time of their uh, wedding. There's young Lister. Is this no, there we are. There's Agnes, there's young Lister. Uh, and she became... They, unfortunately, they hadn't got children, any children, which uh, was sad, but she was a lifelong uh, companion of Lister, helped him in his experiments, wrote his notes, made diagrams for him. She was a great, uh, she was a great help to him. Well, Lister, at the age of 35 and here he is just then, was appointed Professor of Surgery in Glasgow. Uh, his interests were wound healing and wound infection. I was appointed Professor at Westminster at the age of 35, and my interests were wound healing and infection. And there, ladies and gentlemen, any resemblance between Lister and Ellis ceases. Uh, like so, well, let's just look at the next one. This is, these were his wards. Uh, there's Lister's female ward, and there's Lister's male ward, where much of his work that we're going to describe uh, was carried out. Lister, like so many surgeons before him, couldn't explain the following phenomenon. Two people are brought in to your hospital after a road traffic accident. One's got his tibia, bone in his leg, smashed to pieces, a community fracture, but the skin's intact. The other's got a very simple spiral fracture of the bone, nothing very much, but it's gone through the skin. There's a little wound. And every surgeon knew that the chap with the smashed up leg, but with the skin intact, he was going to be in hospital and under treatment for week after week, month after month, as the bone gradually knitted together but his life wasn't in danger. The chap with a little silly wound that big had a very great chance of disaster because Lister, when he arrived at his job, analyzed the infection rate and the amputation rate for compound fractures at the Glasgow Royal Infirmary. That's to say fractures complicated by injury to the overlying skin. And he found that of 100 patients with compound fractures of the bones admitted to the Glasgow Royal Infirmary, 50%, one in two, died. 90% ended up with an amputation. So these were terrible figures, uh, which were very distressing. Of course, people were very interested in this. Why is it that the, the, the little wound uh, underwent this terrible infection? whereas the smashed-up bone was intact. So the theory was, it's air. If air gets into the wound, this suppuration, this awful infection, which I'll talk about in a minute, uh, took place. Well, John Hunter, and of course you'll know all about Hunter from the Hunterian Museum here, Hunter at St George's, and Lister himself said, that's crazy, it's nothing to do with air getting in the wound, because both these shrewd clinical observers had made the same observation. Quite often, if you fracture your ribs, a spicule of rib goes into the 
pleur, the, the, cover, the covering of the lung, and air escapes into the chest wall. It's called surgical emphysema. You examine the patient, and it goes... Because there's air surrounding the fracture. And they say, well, there's a fracture with air in it. Nothing happens there. These heal up beautifully. They never, they never suppurate. So that theory, whatever it is, uh, doesn't hold a water. Uh, well, as I say, they were very familiar with, uh, uh, with wound infection. Now, of course, in those days, there was no photographs of, of wounds, as we see now in the textbooks and in the articles. But we are very fortunate that I'm able to show you what we're talking about because uh, this uh, Edinburgh uh, surgeon, uh, uh, Charles Bell, who was a, uh, was a surgeon at the Middlesex Hospital, uh, in 1815, uh, the news came that the Battle of Waterloo had taken place and Bell gathered his assistants together and said, we're going over the Channel Boys to help the wounded and spent the next week or two dealing with the vast numbers of wounded soldiers on both sides of the conflict uh, at the Battle of Waterloo. And he, as well as being a remarkable surgeon and physiologist, he described... Bell's palsy, the facial palsy that you're all familiar with. Uh, he was a great artist. He made sketches of his wounded patients, and when he got back to London, painted them. And here are some examples. Here's a patient whose uh, uh, arm has been blown off uh, by, by a, a howitzer shell. The chap's desperately ill. The wound has uh, become infected, it's swollen, it's discoloured. Uh, the chap's obviously very toxic and ill. The typical result that you'd see with a severe injury involving the bone. Here's a poor chap with a compound fracture of the skull, desperately ill, and the wound infected, swollen, the man toxic, probably going to die. As well as that, of course, there were the awful uh, results of, of wound infection, tetanus. And here's a dramatic painting, which you'll find in the library of the uh, Edinburgh College of Surgeons, of a patient undergoing tetanic spasm. So this was a not uncommon accompaniment of these awful injuries. Well, the wonderful thing about working in the university is you meet people in other specialties. And it was Thomas Anderson, who's the professor of surgery, who in 1865 told Lister of Pasteur's publications uh, up to 1860. Pasteur, of course, being Frenchman, published in, in, in French. Lister was well familiar with French and German surgical literature, but being a surgeon didn't read the chemical journals. He relied on... This was a wonderful cross-fertilisation of chemist to surgeon telling him the work of, a, of another chemist in France. And Pasteur, I won't go into it now, was the chap who did all these classic ex experiments where he showed that uh, milk, urine, wine, anything you like, if you leave it out in the open air, becomes smelly and crust forms over it. And if you look at the crust, there are little animacules. There are little things which, of course, we now know are bacteria. Uh, if you boil the milk or the urine or the wine and you put a bit of cotton wool in the top so that the air can get in, but the cotton wool will filter out the microbes, 
Nothing happens to the urine or the, or the wine <clears throat> or the milk. And this is remarkable. So there's, there's Pasteur, another remarkable man. And this is very interesting because this is the lecture notes of one of Lister's students at Glasgow. Now, when I lecture to the students in surgery at Westminster, I'd tell them about piles and hernias and lumps and bumps in the breast and so on. But you see, Lister's surgical lectures to the students was telling them about these classical experiments of Pasteur. Here he is, boiling the uh, urine or the wine or the milk with this arrangement of a tube over it. So this is bacteria killed. You then break off that bit of glass there and the air, the bacteria are dropping in like this. But the bacteria can't get round the tube there and this exposed to the air uh, remains, but, but unable for bacteria to get in, remains sweet and clean. Remarkable. And, of course, Lister's mind was prepared with this because he'd seen these things hmm, through his microscope when he was a house surgeon. So he, he, his, his mind was alert to this. Interestingly enough, Lister made some very interesting observations. This was much later on uh, when Lister was usually, having trained, it, trained in Scotland, was very economic. He found that urine was a very good medium to use for growing bacteria. And in one of his experiments, he found that the urine in his tube was absolutely free from infection. And there was a crust growing on it. And when he looked at the crust carefully, he found these spores of uh, what his brother, who was a mycologist, an expert on fungi, identified as penicillium, the blue mold. So there was Lister making an observation made many years later by Fleming at St. Mary's Hospital. Remarkable scientist. So now Pasteur, uh, Pasteur's work gave Lister the clue. It wasn't the air getting into the wound. It was the microbes, Pasteur's or germs, getting into the wound. And of course, in the sinking environment of the Glasgow Royal Infirmary, where uh, the smell was atrocious, and where patients were lying next to infected cases, the chances of the wound becoming infected was pretty well 100%. So uh, Glasgow, uh, Glasgow was the site of the first antiseptic operation, 12th of August, 1865. And the, of course, it's all very well for Pasteur to boil the milk or the urine or the wine. You can't boil a compound fracture. So Lister experimented with various chemicals and came up with the idea of using carbolic acid. Carbolic acid had been used for cleaning the drains. And Lister knew very well that the smell of the surgical wards at the Glasgow Royal Infirmary were very similar to the smell that you get when you go down the drains. Carbolic was excellent. Uh, the patient was a little boy called James Greenlees. He was 11. He'd been knocked over by a wagon, and he had a compound fracture of the tibia and fibula. It was an injury I told you about. It was a little one-and-a-half-inch wound over it like that where the bone had stuck through. Sort of thing that the senior house officer would fix up today without any, without any thought. But in those days, this little boy, James Greenlees, the figures were he had a 90% chance of of losing his limb, his leg, and he had a 50% chance of dying. 
This was the, the, the operation wasn't done in the operating theatre, it was done in, in the side ward. Uh, this picture was taken the early 20th century when, when the old uh, Royal Infirmary was going to be pulled down, but they, they, they preserved this room with Lister's portrait there for its historic value. They photographed it before the whole building was pulled down. And this is a painting by a modern American artist of the scene in the two-bedded side room. There's little James Greenleys. There's Lister, nicely portrayed. There's Lister's sinus forceps, which he used. There's the ward sister. There's the ward staff nurse. And what Lister did was he very carefully mopped out the wound with pure carbolic. I'm so sorry, undiluted. It was crude carbolic, but it was undiluted. Mopped out the wound with carbolic, put a big dressing of carbolic soaked gauze over it, carefully splinted the leg. This was the, first, the big experiment. This is a very good painting. He's got everything right, has the artist, who's medically qualified. He's got one thing wrong. He's painted a little 11-year-old American boy of about 1950. James Greenlees would have been a little Glasgow tyke. He'd have been pediculotic, rachitic, scorbutic, and a few other things as well. Anyhow, it's neither here nor there. Now, the critical experiment. He left the leg splinted, untouched, for four days. Because he knew very well that any other patient admitted to the Glasgow Royal Infirmary surgical wards by four days, if he was still alive, if he was still alive, would be desperately ill, high fever, flushed, toxic, uh, the legs swollen, uh, uh, the skin gangrenous, perhaps bubbles of gas if it was a clostridial gas gangrene infection coming out of it. As it is, James Greenies was lying there looking fit and well. Uh, Lister removed the dressing, took off the splint, removed the dressing. The skin was a bit red because he was using crude, undiluted carbolic. Apart from that, no problem at all, and little James walked out of hospital with both legs in situ a couple of months later. Now, you and any surgeon here in 1865 would have rushed off to the Lancet or the British Medical Journal and say, stand back, I've made a great discovery. But Lister was a scientist. He waited for two years. He waited for two years before he published anything about it because he went on and on. He wasn't satisfied with one case. On and on and on. And in 1867, two years later, in a series of one, two, three, four, five, uh, that should be volume two, five papers, uh, he wrote this article, which I won't read out for you. Uh, and I've done, I've done you the benefit of reading through them very carefully because scattered through these papers, there were the reports of 11 compound fractures treated by this new method, uh, a new method of treating compound fracture, etc. Uh, so as I've done the work for you, uh, here are the 11 cases. Listen, the first 11 cases, compound fracture. Case number one, James Greenlees. R is recovery. J, number two, male age 32, kicked by a horse, hospital gangrene, amputation. What happened there? Lister went on holiday. 
That's the only thing about Lister that stops him being my hero. He went on ho- in the middle of all this. As soon as his back would turn, the boys said, oh, for goodness sake, carbolic, schmarbolic, you know, let's get out the germaline or whatever they were using. Lister came back from a very short hospital. The leg was gangrenous, amputation. Uh, when I was professor of surgery, my registrars weren't allowed to go on holiday when they were doing research. I said, look what happened to Lister. I was a tyrant in those days. I've, I've matured since then. Right, anyhow, so next case, recovery, recovery, recovery. Death. This was a very sad case. 57-year-old man, a quarry man, and there was a fall of rock onto his leg. Hmm? And he came in with an absolutely smashed-up femur, what we call a community fracture, with a compound fracture, with an with, uh, with, um, open wound over it. Uh, it was carefully treated, and the patient was doing well. And then, a few days later, he, about ten days, if I remember, he started spurting arterial blood out of the wound, secondary hemorrhage, uh, the, 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 the surgeon on duty rushed into the wall, tied the femoral artery there and then in the bed, stopped the bleeding, and reading the notes, uh, if it had been today and they'd had blood transfusion, if they'd given him a, a pint of blood, he'd have recovered. Uh, uh, the leg was all right, but he just died of, uh, of massive hemorrhage. So that was a great shame. Recovery, 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 recovery. So do you see, here are 11 cases, and as I say, in the, you would have expected that of those 11 cases, as I say, uh, half of them uh, would have died. So let's say four, five, six of these would have died, and pretty well all of them would have ended up like this poor chap uh, uh, with an amputation. Uh, I've actually uh, got, I'm, I'm no good at statistics, I've got a very good statistician to go over these figures, and he said uh, that's statistically significant. Uh, well, Lister's technique was interesting because uh, as well as using uh, carbolic as a dressing, of course, he surrounded the wound with carbolic-soaked uh, towels. He carefully soaked his hands in carbolic, soaked the instruments in carbolic, soaked the dressings in carbolic, and then he decided that the right thing to do was to produce an aerosol of carbolic in the operating room. And this, they, they nicknamed this uh, the donkey engine. Uh, and the job of the house surgeon would be to produce a tremendous spray of carbolic in the, in the, in the room. These were other modifications of his machine, and we've got one here to show you. In fact, this wasn't necessary, and you can just imagine that working in an aerosol spray of carbolic uh, was not uh, pleasant. But the operation, the operative method was simplicity itself. This drawing is said to show Lister operating. I don't, I, I don't think so, but certainly it would be uh, identical with the procedure uh, that we would uh, expect him to have done. A patient anaesthetised. Uh, in Scotland, this was probably chloroform, uh, the carbolic spray. The surgeons have rolled up their sleeves. The sponge is soaked in car- They soak their hands in carbolic. 
their instruments are soaked in carbolic, the dressings are soaked in carbolic. Very, very simple technique. But with that technique, Lister was able to do things that other surgeons didn't dare perform. So Lister started operating on non-compound fractures, fractures where the skin was intact. If anybody had suggested before Lister that you should operate on a fracture which hadn't got a wound over it, they'd say, you're crazy. You're converting that safe fracture from which the patient is going to die into an open wound with a 90% chance of amputation, a 50% chance of dying. But Lister said, providing you use my technique, it's perfectly safe to operate on closed fractures. So here's the first report in those series of papers in The Lancet of a patient with a fracture of the elbow here who was absolutely, it had been done some little time before, his, his elbow was absolutely useless because he couldn't move it at all. And Lister operated on him and put a wire through the, the ends of the bone. This is the ulna, the bone at the tip of your elbow. Uh, and the patient made an absolutely smooth recovery. He did the same with fractures of the kneecap, wired the bits together again, etc., etc., etc. Operated on patients with tuberculous joints, which nobody would dare have opened before. So providing you use my technique, absolutely safe. This is rather fun because this is, this is a bunch of uh, medical students, modern medical students, simulating Lister's operation. They've, they've dressed themselves up. They've used Lister's spray there. There's the, there's the little bottle of chloroform and so on. And they're mimicking Lister. Uh, Lister wouldn't have allowed this. You see the patient's arms drop down like that. Uh, that's a terrible thing to happen. He'd probably pull out all the nerves of his neck in that accident. So. That's a good picture to show medico-legally what not to do. Well, as I say, Lister's technique was simplicity itself. Uh, and the interesting thing was that although his results were remarkable, a lot of surgeons didn't believe what he was saying. They thought carbolic was just another one of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dressings that people have been using since the time of Amboise Paré. You know, it's just another ointment that we're using. So they'd use a bit of carbolic, they would drop the scalpel on the floor, pick it up and use it again. Hmm? Uh, they'd put their finger into a septic case, they wouldn't wash, they'd go from a septic case straight to a, a clean operation, and of course the wound would separate. They'd say carbolic is no better uh, than any other medicament, not realising it isn't the carbolic, it's the whole principle, the Listerian principle uh, that was important. And indeed it was quite difficult uh, for uh, people in the UK, particularly in the south in England, the Scots took it up, but the English were a little bit diffident about this. Just another ointment coming out of Scotland. And it, interestingly it was visitors from the continent, particularly from Germany, who came to watch Lister at work, first of all in Glasgow and then in Edinburgh, later still in London, and modified his technique into so-called aseptic surgery, in which the instruments were sterilised by boiling, the gowns were sterilised by boiling, and so on. And so things started to improve. Here's an operation where they've taken off their... Uh, their um, uh, 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 day clothes, they've put on 
special operating gowns. They've, they've actually got an apron there. Uh, but you see they're still using bare hands, which they clean with uh, either by scrubbing or by antiseptics. Uh, by the end of the century, things are beginning to look more and more like a modern operating theatre. Again, they're still not wearing gloves. Uh, but things are looking cleaner and better. Until, of course, we come to uh, modern times uh, with masks and uh, gowns and gloves and all the impedimentia of the modern operating theatre. Now, uh, gloves are interesting because these came very late into uh, general use. Uh, and the story is interesting. You see, uh, by 1867, uh, Lister had announced to work uh, to the world the antiseptic treatment of wounds. Uh, but for uh, the next few decades, right up to the 1890s, uh, people were operating... Uh, with uh, bare hands. Uh, and this is interesting because this uh, man here is William Halstead, one of the great pioneers of modern surgery, Halstead of the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. And uh, he's, it's well known that he was one of the first people uh, to use surgical gloves. The story is interesting because his theatre sister, Caroline Hampton came to him one day and said, Dr. Halstead, I'm afraid I'm, I'm, I can't scrub up any more with you. I'm, I'm going to resign as your theatre sister. Well, any surgeon will tell you that they can do without most things. They can do without their secretary. They can do without their wife in many cases, but they can't do without their operating theatre sister. So Halstead was absolutely shocked. He said, what's the trouble? And she said, it's this anti... They're using bichloride of mercury. It's this, it's this antiseptic. She said, look at my hands. They're absolutely red raw and, 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 and little sores all over the place. It's just agony dipping my hands in this awful antiseptic. I've got to stop now. As from today. Finished. I was terribly upset. So to cheer himself up, he went to see a post-mortem of one of his patients that had just died in the pathology department where the famous Claude Welch, the professor of pathology, was doing the autopsy. Welch, Clostridium welshii, the organism of gas gangrene, was, was the professor of pathology at, at, uh, at uh, Baltimore. And, and Welch was, was doing the post-mortem with big rubber gloves on his hand. And Horster said, Welch, what's this with the gloves? And he said, my wife was absolutely fed up with me because of the stench I used to bring home from the post-mortem room. And she was threatening me to withdraw my conjugal rights. So I went along to, the, to, to uh, 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 Goodyear, the rubber people, and they made me these gloves. I put these gloves on, do the post-mortem, uh, and my, my, my marriage has been saved. So seizing a pair of, horse, of, 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 of uh, Welsh's gloves, he rushed back to Miss Hampton. They boiled up the gloves, put them on. By the way, this is very interesting. That in this photograph, uh, you'll see that uh, uh, one of his assistants, this is a chap called uh, um, uh, Finney, a great surgeon, one, uh, who was then his resident, you can see he's wearing one of these old... 
uh, old-fashioned, uh, rather crude, rather thick uh, rubber gloves. Halstead rushed back, gave Caroline Hampton the gloves. Hands became absolutely beautiful, and he married the girl. Say ah. Say ah. So, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, of course, gloves. Nobody talked about them. Horstead never published this. It was it was word of mouth. People would come into the operating theatre and say, "What's all this about gloves?" Well, and you see, they were used originally not to protect the patient, but to protect the surgeon from the antiseptics. And so people say, "Oh, I have a pair of those," you know, because my hands get very sore. And so it spread by word of mouth. And amazingly enough, the first paper. Uh, about using surgical gloves was 1897 from, of all places, Estonia, the professor of surgery in Tartu. So do you see 1870, uh, 1867, uh, so it took 30 years, 30 years from Lister's publication in The Lancet to the first publication on using gloves in the operating theatre, and he says, I translate from the German, to wear boiled rubber gloves is to have boiled hands. Well, actually, gloves have always fascinated me, uh, and indeed at Westminster we did a lot of the work uh, developing the modern glove. Of course, they're now very smart. They come in lovely uh, plastic things. They're disposable. It takes a moment to put on. And they're so beautifully thin, you really, you really hardly know that you've, you've got anything in your hand. Wonderful. But they've taken a lot of evolution to the modern glove that we use today. Well, of course, Lister went on to uh, become the famous man that we know today. Uh, he uh, moved from uh, uh, Glasgow uh, in 1869 to become professor in Edinburgh, uh, spent about eight years there. He was very upset. He was really, you know, he was, he was calmness itself, but he, he was distressed uh, that people on the continent accepted what he was saying, but people in the south... Uh, really were a bit resistant to all this newfangled operating technique, which was a bit of a nuisance, doing things the way Lister asked you to do it. And so he decided, after a lot of, uh, of thought, uh, to migrate down to London and, uh, uh, in 1877, until he retired. He was professor of surgery at King's, where he, his first years were not particularly happy. The students... Uh, didn't like his lectures because, as I say, instead of telling them how to differentiate between a direct and an indirect hernia, he was busy telling them about Pasteur's work uh, in, uh, in Paris. Uh, surgeons didn't uh, very slowly accepted his work, although having said that, by the end of the century, it was well established. In contrast, you see, to the discovery of, ant of anaesthetics, because as soon as ether... Uh, got into the papers, everybody around the world, there was no argument that uh, anaesthetizing patients rather than submitting them to the agony of the knife was a good thing. 
he was the first surgeon to enter the House of Lords. He was one of the first, uh, the group of people to receive the Order of Merit uh, introduced by Edward VII when he came to the throne in 1902. Uh, if you go to Portland uh, Place, just north of the BBC, do spend a moment to look at this statue. It's got two words on it. On the front, it says Lister, and on the side, it says Surgery. And you're expected to know the rest. <laughs> and what absolutely gets my goat is that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of statues to generals who've wiped out God knows how many millions of people between them. Hmm? And there are two statues that I know of hmm, to surgeons, not just in London, as far as I know in the whole of this country. Uh, one is in, Portland, uh, is in a Portland Place, Lister, and the other one you'll see in Leicester Square, uh, which is to our, our John Hunter, uh, who, who, who lived just off Leicester Square, uh, when he was in practice there. So I think I've made my case that, that uh, you can divide surgery into the pre-Listerian and the post-Listerian era, and Lister was undoubtedly uh, our greatest surgical scientist. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much indeed. I'm sure there will be questions. If I could just ask you to make your question as uh, brief and straightforward as possible for the speech-to-text and for the other listeners. Um, but please. Can I ask you if there's any link between Lister and Fleming in their lifetime? No, none at all. None at all, as far as I know. It was very interesting that everybody uh, knows about Fleming discovering the penicillin spore fortuitously in the, in the 1920s at St. Mary's. Uh, when uh, Howard Florey and uh, uh, Ernst Chain in Oxford uh, in 1939, 1940, uh, wanted to investigate uh, Fleming's work, because there was this extraordinary thing that, that, a, that a fungus, uh, a bacterium, can inhibit... Uh, sorry, sorry, a fungus can inhibit bacterial growth. Um, Chain, Ernst Chain, went along to the uh, science, muse, uh, science library in Oxford and dug out a couple of hundred references, including Lister, of people who made the same observation that fungi growing on plates hmm, can inhibit bacterial growth. Lister himself said that this might be of some value. Pasteur had made this observation and said, no, I don't understand it, but one day this could be of, of clinical value. Uh, so Fleming, great chap though he was, 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 was not really the father of uh, antibiotics. I'm sorry to say. Yes, ma'am.
it was a fairly, it was a, it was a slow process. Uh, when I was a young surgeon, a lot of surgeons would come into the operating theatre, take their jacket off, some of them would remove their tie and, and put, a, put a, 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 a plastic apron on and then very meticulously scrub up and put their gowns on. Uh, and it worked perfectly well. Hmm? I think most of the reason why we change is to save our clothes from getting dirty. Well, the interesting thing was that Semmelweis, and you, you know all about Ignat Semmelweis in, in Budapest, who said uh, that it's the, it's the obstetrician who carries some mysterious substance, some effluvium, from the, from the septic case into the birth passages of the woman that he's delivering. Do you see? And uh, poor old Semmelweis died in 1867, which was the date that Lister published his paper on anti If only he'd lived another year or two, and they'd say, poor old Semmelweis, what you say is true. It, it was difficult. It was difficult. Of course, they, they, they gradually improved them, and a lot of surgeons doing a delicate operation would say, oh, for hell with this, take a glove off and operate. In fact, providing you've, you've scrubbed up well, uh, there's no reason why uh, you shouldn't use bare hands. Uh, I did my obstetrics uh, as a student during the war. I have to say that. During World War II. There have been lots of wars there. <laughs> Not the Gulf War. And uh, so I did my obstetrics in, uh, in uh, 40, uh, 46. And uh, gloves were in very short supply, rubber. Uh, and they were reserved for, for major surgery. So we uh, delivered babies uh, by scrubbing our hands very carefully and then, and then putting uh, Dettol cream on it. And to this day, I can't bear the smell of Dettol. It reminds me of the labor wards at the old maternity department in Oxford. And, and there, there, we, we scrubbed up very carefully, and the sister used to time us, and we did put antiseptics on our hands, which made our hands very sore, I may say. But you see, you, you don't really... Gloves are a luxury. Hmm? Oh, excuse me. Uh, eye surgeons, at least until recently, just washed their hands because they needed every bit of tactile uh, help. Yes. Absolutely. The, the, absolutely. The trouble was that, 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 that I mean, you, you could just imagine you and I working in a, in, a, in a mist of carbolic acid. It was very unpleasant. You know, coughing and sputtering, eyes watering, hands sore. So I think that the, the Lister's donkey had to go and it's been replaced, fortunately, by other, th other things. The theory was right. It was the practice that was uh, harmful.
They're exhausted. If I may uh, <clears throat> beg your patience just to make four thank yous. Um, firstly, to Johnson & Johnson, who have supported this lecture series, which we're very pleased about <clears throat> because of the historic connection between the company and uh, Lister. It was, I believe, at a lecture of Lister's in the United States that Johnson the second Johnson, um, uh, was inspired to set up the company. I'd like to thank Haley, uh, who does all of the hard work, the archivists who've set up a rather wonderful display of original material on the table at the back there for you to have a look at. Um, and I'll reserve the fourth thanks in just a moment. If I could just plug the next in our series of uh, Lister lunches, which is on the 6th of March at 1 o'clock, which is Sir Barry Jackson talking about carbolic casebook and controversy. Haley, I think this will be in the Webb Johnson Hall downstairs not least because there will be a surprise at the end of that lecture. Uh, and then we have, later in the month, a uh, conference devoted entirely to Lister on the 22nd of March, uh, which details of which you'll find in our website or in the brochures that should be on your chairs um, there. So finally, the fourth and final thanks, of course, is to our speaker for a wonderful educational and informative talk. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much.